Well, great to be back. Great to see many of you. And uh, great to see the rest of you through the camera. It's uh, kind of weird to be doing this hybrid thing. You know, you just kind of get used to talking to your computer and then all of a sudden you walk into class and Clyde's sitting there. <laughs> so, but it is a blessing to be back. And um, so for the past several weeks, actually only for about a, 10 days, the first week and a half, I was in Turkey. Went with uh, my cameraman and did some filming in Turkey with, uh, for my business. And was just amazed at the, the I guess, the great job in a, in a sense that the airlines and the travel industry really are doing with trying to keep everybody safe and uh, was very surprised, actually. Once you, you get out of the media flurry, how things are a little different in the real world, which is not a big surprise. But one of the things that we did in Turkey, and the reason I went to Turkey instead of like Israel or something that seems a little more biblical, is to go to the places that are biblical in Turkey. And there's a bunch. I don't know if you thought about it, but the, the missionary journeys of Paul, the whole first missionary journey, except for Cyprus, uh, was in Turkey. And uh, even today's borders in Turkey surround uh, Haran, you know, where Abraham uh, went. And uh, also just, uh, just west of Haran, if you follow the Euphrates down to the border of Syria, um, we actually went there, and it was kind of fun to fly my drone um, toward the border of Syria and just see what would happen. And, and nothing happened, which was good. But what was uh, neat about going to that particular place was to go to a place that the Bible only mentions three times. It's a place called Carchemish. Have you ever heard of Carchemish? Well, you, you, if you've read the whole Bible, you've read it three times. But it's in these obscure places, and yet what happened at Carchemish was amazing because that was a major pivot in world history at a battle that occurred there at Carchemish. The Syrians and the Babylonians were really the world powers at the time, and that's the, that was the battle that transferred the power from Assyria to Babylon. And I mention that, I bring that up to say that uh, this was a major transition in world history, major transition. And we're familiar with the Assyrians and the Babylonians as far as the biblical story goes, but we're not familiar with Carchemish where that transition occurred. And I mention that because uh, Carchemish is just sort of a, you know, a brief mention in the scriptures. It's mentioned in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and one other place I can't remember. But it's like, it's not a big deal in the Bible. And that is actually encouraging because it was a big deal in world history to us. And yet, from God's perspective, it was just, you know, worth a minor mention. When we think about our world today, we are going through what seems like a huge transition um, in our political lives. And, you know, really any election sort of gives us that feeling that the world's coming to an end or that the wheels are coming off the United States of America. And the, the reality is uh, this transition's not a big deal to God. We don't vote for God, thankfully, or we'd vote him out. Um, they, we crucified him back, you know, 20 centuries ago. But the good news is he's still on the throne, and the, uh, the, the, the thing that was so important at that time between the transition from one evil power, 
the Assyrians, to, to another evil power, the Babylonians, took place, and God used that for his grand plan. And another thing that's ironic about that battle, this really isn't about Carchemish, but there's so much that's wonderful about it, is that one of the godliest, in fact, probably the godliest king that ever was, Josiah. He was probably even godlier than David. Josiah tried to stop the Egyptians from going up and helping the Assyrians in that battle, and Josiah got killed. Good, godly Josiah. And so when you have all this evil that's happening at a time, at the time in world history, and yet that transition, God used that for his glory, and God used that for the ultimate plan of Israel, and ultimately for, for us as well. So the good news is, even when we turn on the news, which is really turning on the bad news, it seems, these days, um, God's still there. He's behind the scenes. Everything that we see is just sort of a minor mention in, uh, in God's word. So let me, ask, uh, let me ask you a question, actually several questions, and it's really all the same question, but I'll ask it to you this way. Do you ever wonder when all the imbeciles in the world will finally begin to see things objectively like we do? <laughs> I think about that when I'm driving on the road. I think, when are all the idiots in the world going to finally get it? When I was training my daughters how to drive, we talked about all the idiots on the road, and they're still there. They are still there. Um, when you hear about somebody else prospering, is your initial reaction to wish it would happen to you? Or is it to rejoice with them? Or to think maybe why they shouldn't uh, get what, they, what they've gotten? That's not an easy question for me to answer because often envy is what strikes me instead of rejoicing when I hear some, of someone else prospering in some way. You know, every one of these questions reveals sort of a thread of preoccupation with ourselves, and really it all roots from one word, and that's pride. Let's look together at a minor prophet named Obadiah. Obadiah. We are going to get back into our series on a message from each of the 66 books of the Bible. Remember that series? way back when we were doing that. Obadiah is next. We started the Minor Prophets, and we made it through Hosea, Joel, Amos, and then came to an abrupt pause. But we're going to get back into it with Obadiah. You might have to look at your table of contents if you're not real sure where Obadiah is. But he is the shortest Bible, or the shortest book in the Bible, only 21 verses, and yet he packs a punch. And it is a punch aimed at pride. The book of Obadiah. Remember the context of most of the minor prophets is uh, looking at the time of the exile. Before the exile, saying, Israel, if you don't get it together, God's going to take you out of the land. And then uh, post-exile, you have the last three, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, are talking about the, the restoration coming back into the land and restoring everything. But Obadiah is one of the few books, along with uh, Jonah and Nahum, that primarily have a message that isn't Israel-based. It's based toward another nation, toward, toward a neighbor. This one based to Edom. You still trying to find Obadiah, Carol? <laughs> I got it, I got it. 
Somebody help her find Obadiah. Well, let's look together because uh, the, the message here, thankfully, is not just to Edom, long gone, but it's in the Bible because it is a message that's relevant to us and is so practical. Let's begin right in verse 1. We're going to try to make our way through most of this book. It's short, but very powerful. Verse 1 says, The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and an envoy has been sent among the nations, saying, Arise, let us go against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. So Obadiah, Obadiah's name means the servant of the Lord. And it's sort of a, 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 a rebuke in the sense here when you realize that the, the theme of Obadiah is about pride. And then you have the, the title of the book, Servant of the Lord. Right in, with the name of the book, we have sort of a motive check. Like, why am I living? Am I a servant of the Lord? Or am I going to be addressed by Obadiah as well? I don't know if you've ever been stung by a scorpion. Here in Texas, we've got a few of those critters. And uh, I grew up in San Antonio, and it seems like maybe there's more scorpions per square inch down in San Antonio than there are up here. But I've been stung quite a few times by a scorpion. And they never let you know it's about to happen. You know, you're, you like flip over, flip over a blanket or you're walking across the floor and all of a sudden you, there is this shooting pain that feels like you got your finger or your toe in a fire. And if you've ever been stung by a scorpion, you realize just this amazement at how something so small can produce a, a pain so huge. Well, when I read Obadiah, I get that same feeling. The smallest book in the Bible, the shortest book in the Bible, but it stings. Obadiah is saying that Edom is now in God's crosshairs, and he calls all the nations, or these particular nations, to come and to make battle against Edom. And this is exactly what happened in their future. Verse 3, the arrogance of your heart has deceived you, God says, you who live in the clefts of the rock. In the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to earth? The capital of Edom was a place called Selah. Typically, if we, when we hear Selah, we think of the Psalms, but it's not the same word. This is a word uh, that means the rock. In fact, there in verse 3, you who live in the clefts of the rock, you might have a, a note in your margin that says Selah. Uh, Selah means the rock. The Greek counterpoint to that is Petra, and many people believe that Petra, also in ancient Edom, represents this, uh, this area or this capital. Maybe so, maybe not. It's not entirely clear. Of course, Petra, as we typically visit it today, with all those wonderful Nabataean carvings, wasn't around in Obadiah's day, or at least those carvings weren't. But that, that area was ancient Edom. And when it talks about you who live in the clefts of the rock, your arrogance has deceived you. He's making a clear reference to the, uh, the geography of Edom. If you've been, and, and Petra is a great example, if you've been to Petra or if you ever get to go or if you remember the Indiana Jones movie, either way, um, you know there's this long entrance to it. There's this entrance that uh, it's very narrow and very high and there's only one way in and it's through this narrow entrance. 
And if you were to put some archers up on the ridge, you easily would be able to defend your city because no one gets in or out but through that, that uh, it's called the seek, this little narrow doorway. And Edom was like that. It had a lot of narrow passages and it was easy for them to defend themselves. And because it was so easy, they had this misplaced confidence that they were secure. And so when they say, you, know, you, you build your, your, uh, your, though you build high like the eagle, you set your nest among the stars, your dwelling place is there in the rock. And it led to this arrogance. God says, the arrogance of your heart has deceived you. The word that he uses there for arrogance is from a Hebrew word that means bubbling or like boiling. In fact, the, the reference there is sort of a metaphor for being puffed up. When it's something is boiling or it's increasing, it's getting bigger and bigger. This is the idea here of the, the confidence that, 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 that Edom had in themselves in their own location. No one can touch us. In other words, who's going to bring me down to earth? No one can touch us, was their thought. And it led to arrogance. Well, here's a, here's a principle that we can get just from these first few verses. And there are a couple of more as well, but this one is very poignant. And it's simply this, that an arrogant heart seeks personal security apart from God. An arrogant heart seeks personal security apart from God. Um, I heard about a seven-year-old girl who got $5 from her mom for doing her memory work in Sunday school. She uh, did a great job, and her mom gave her $5. And one of the ladies in the church said, uh, congratulated her for doing a good job. And the little girl says, yeah, I, I put all my $5 in the offering plate. And the lady says, well, that's fantastic. And she says, yeah, now maybe God will let me do some of the things I want to do. I like that story because it's a lot easier to tell that story about that little girl than it is to talk about myself or to talk about you. Because whether we're young or old, that's so often our temptation, isn't it? That we've done a little bit of good, we've done $5 worth of good, and now we feel like we've earned a little independence from God. Uh, and if the Lord blesses us in such a way that he gives us, like, for example, Edom's great place of security, translate that into your life. What is a great source of security in your life? Maybe it is a solid marriage. Maybe it is a very healthy retirement. Maybe it is a great family or a great location or just fill in the blank of what God's given you that, that has provided security in your life. An arrogant heart seeks security personal security apart from God. The things that God has given us are not to replace him. They are pointing to him as the one that ultimately is the provider. And Edom's geographical location for them was a source of security, of self-sufficiency, and we tend to reject any kind of external control of our lives if we feel like we don't need it. And that includes God which is so often why he keeps us so close to the edge of our means, relationally, financially, uh, our health, you know, you name it. Why is it, God, I'm always struggling? God says, well, if you didn't, you wouldn't be so close to me. This is one of the reasons that God loves us enough to let us struggle. I like what Augustine wrote in his book, The Confessions. He said, 
Sin comes when we take a perfectly natural desire or longing or ambition and try desperately to fulfill it without God. Not only is it sin, it is a perverse distortion of the image of the Creator in us. All these good things and our security are rightly found only and completely in Him. Edom asked, who will bring me down? And it's almost like God said, you know what? I'm glad you asked that question. Look at verse 4. God answers, though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you would be ruined. Would they not only steal until they had enough? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave some gleanings? Oh, how Esau will be ransacked and his treasures, his, his hidden treasures searched out. Esau, <clears throat> of course, is the, um, the, the ancestor for Edom, for the whole nation of the Edomites. So when he refers to Esau, he's referring to the Edomites. And he gives a, an illustration here. If thieves were to come, I don't know if you've ever had thieves break into your house. I have had that happen a couple of times, and it's a horrible feeling. The most horrible feeling is not just the, the stuff that they've stolen, um, but it's just this feeling of being violated. You know, it's just like total strangers walking around in my house and taking stuff willy-nilly. It's just feeling this feeling of violation. But they didn't take everything. I mean, they left the carpet which was good. God says to Edom, they're going to take the carpet when they come for you. You know, if, they, if grape gatherers came, would they leave a little gleaning? Sure they would. They don't take the carpet. But Edom, you, they're going to take everything. The judgment that's coming is going to come and it's going to wipe you out. God says, I will bring you down. And, and it's neat to see here two levels of action in the world. We typically only focus on one, and the news definitely just focuses on one, and that is that you've got nations warring against nations and governments against governments and ideologies against ideologies, but above it all is God. God working through evil people to bring about his good plan. God says, I will bring you down. God is ultimately the one doing it, but he's working through these invaders that are going to come into Edom's country. And again, that's important. As we, as we flip on the news, as we read the paper, as we look at the news feeds on the Internet, we need to remember that even though all we see are, is world events happening, God is the one that is, that is behind it all, even when these world events from our perspective, are very evil. And in a sense, that's one of the themes of Obadiah is God's people saying, uh, God, you're, you're, you're bringing about your will in a way that seems really terrible. And ultimately, it ends with good news, which is something that we can take encouragement with as well. So self-security. Edomites are struggling with that because they're depending on their resources. In verse 7, we begin to see several specific things that they're trusting in. And uh, even though this was a long time ago, we see these same things in our lives. Verse 10, because of the violence to your brother Jacob, 
<clears throat> you will be covered with shame and you will be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you too were as one of them. Do not gloat over your brother's day, the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the sons of Judah in the day of their destruction. Yes, do not boast in the day of their distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their disaster. Yes, you, <laughs> I like that, yes, you, do not gloat over their calamity in the day of their disaster and do not loot their wealth in the day of their disaster. Do not stand at the fork of the road to cut down their fugitives and do not imprison their survivors in the day of their distress. Over and over God is saying, do not, do not, do not. And I've got those underlined here in, in my Bible. And then on the day, on the day, in that day, it, it, these things are repeated for a reason. God is making uh, a repeated point. And he lists four particular things that Obadiah is trusting in. In verse 7, or I'm sorry, in verse 6 is their wealth. Verse 7 are their allies. Verse 8 is their wisdom. And verse 9 is in their military. And think about that in our lives as well. Wealth, allies, knowledge or wisdom, and military. If we take God out of the picture, these are the things that we cling to for security. And God's saying, these are the very things that's going to be taken away from you, whether it's wealth, whether it's wisdom, or whether it's people. People can be a great substitute, and by that I mean a, a, a common substitute for God in our lives. Because people will talk back. God often seems so silent unless we read the word and then we struggle to think, well, how does Obadiah relate to Tuesday morning? It seems a challenge. But the reality is these are the same things that we trust in, wealth, wisdom, and people. I love that psalm. I think it's Psalm 127 that says, unless the Lord guards the city, they labor in, lab they labor in vain, or they, they, watch the, uh, they watch it in vain. Uh, it's one thing to guard the city, but if God's not the one ultimately doing it, it's all in vain. So, the Lord tells Edom, your arrogant heart has deceived you. And here's another principle that we can glean from this, and it's, uh, it's just as convicting as the first one. And it's this, an arrogant heart gloats over the pain of another's justice. Think about those words. An arrogant heart gloats over the pain of another's justice. We love to see justice happen, don't we? To other people. We don't like justice to happen to us. We like grace to happen to us. But for other people, bring on the justice. An arrogant heart, and it's not that we don't want justice to happen, but it's the gloating. It's the gloating God is saying. And he says it in verse 12. Do not gloat over your brother's day, the day of his misfortune, and don't rejoice over it. This is what makes it wrong. This is what makes it arrogant. Don't gloat over it. And we're told why we shouldn't gloat over it is because one day this is going to happen to us. Um, because we all get some sense, we all get sort of a taste of God's justice even in this life when we struggle. So whenever God reveals 
somebody's calamity in our lives, it's not so we can feel better about ourselves. It's so that we can have compassion for them. It's tough, boy, that's tough to remember. It's really tough to remember. When you see somebody struggling and somebody that you know has struggled because of their sin and then they finally get what they deserve, it's tough not to gloat, isn't it? Or to feel better about, you know, my life because I'm not near as bad. But the reality is God doesn't want us to do that. When he sees, when he allows us to see somebody else's misfortune, it's not so that we can gloat, but it's, it should bring compassion for us. Edom didn't have that toward Judah. This is speaking of when Judah was invaded on some incident. Something, it's, I think it's the Babylonian invasion. It's not terribly clear historically which invasion this was. But instead of helping or instead of having compassion, Edom was like, hey, you guys deserve that. In fact, Edom even jumped in and took advantage of it to their own uh, benefit. And God is saying that was wrong. That was wrong to do that. An arrogant heart gloats over the pain of another's justice. Well, here's, uh, here's why we shouldn't gloat. We're told, starting verse 15, for, here's the reason, the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. Because just as you drank on my holy mountain, all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and swallow and become as if they had never existed. The word therefore, in beginning verse 15, gives the reason. How Edom dealt with others, particularly Israel, is how God is going to deal with Edom. We see that in the New Testament as well. Jesus said that in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not judge lest you be judged. In the way that you judge others, so it will be brought to you. You will be judged by God in that way. It doesn't mean that you don't determine what's right or wrong or even say what's right or wrong, but you don't make a judgment hypocritically. This is, this is the challenge from our perspective as, as Christians when we read Obadiah. And all the do-nots that we're, we're told here not to do, or they were, verse 12, 13, 14, all these do-nots, Edom particularly was not to do it because, verse 15, God says uh, he's going to deal this way with all the nations and their fortunes are going to be reversed. Gloating over others' misfortunes, whether it's in politics, whether it's in church, whether it's in business or family, um, we should have compassion instead of uh, a hypocritical judgment. And then the good news begins to kick in. And boy, we could use some of it uh, in our lives and in this day and age. Look verse 17 and make our way down toward the end. But on Mount Zion, there will be those who escape and it will be holy. And the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. And, and the house of Joseph, and then the house of Jacob will be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame. But the house of Esau will be a stubble and they will set them on fire and consume them so that there will be no survivor of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Then, uh, starting verse 19, he begins to mention some places that might not mean a lot to us when we read them initially, but let's look through them and we'll just talk about why they're significant. He says, 
Then those of the Negev will possess the mountain of Esau. So the Negev's in the south. So those in the south. And then he goes on. Those in the Shephelah, or the Philistine plain, now that's to the west. Also the possession of the territory of Ephraim and the territory of Samaria, that's to the north. And Benjamin will possess Gilead, that's to the east. So north, south, east, west, all directions, he's saying. Verse 20, the exiles of this host of the sons of Israel who are among the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, that's way far north, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in uh, Sepharad. We have no idea where that is. Some say it's in Iraq. Some say it's even in Turkey. But here's the point. They will possess the cities of the Negev. The deliverers will ascend Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. In short, what, what Obadiah is saying is, the way it is now is not the way it's always going to be. For you pick any direction you want, north, south, east, west, I'm going to bring my people back, they're going to, they're going to uh, be in the land, and my promises to, to my people will be fulfilled. And don't you just love that last sentence? And the kingdom will be the Lord's. Won't that be a great day when the government of the world will be upon his shoulders? When Jesus Christ, our Messiah, is ruling the world, this very world, for a thousand years from Jerusalem, the kingdom will be the Lord's. This is referring to the future coming kingdom of God when Christ rules on earth. This is a future that we look forward to. It is a future that we get to participate in by his grace and what a great day it will be. So here's a final principle, verse 3, uh, the, not verse 3, but number 3. A humble heart, by contrast to the arrogant heart, a humble heart enjoys true benefits in God, both now and forever. A humble heart enjoys true benefits in God, both now and forever. Humble heart. That's the tough assignment having a humble heart. I remember years ago, back when uh, Gray Davis was the governor of California, he signed into law a law that made it finally safe to say, I'm sorry. I don't know if you remember that I'm sorry law back in California, back in the, it was the early 80s, I think it was. But anyway, it's basically stated that apologies or, quote, benevolent gestures of sympathy, end quote, cannot be used or interpreted as admissions of guilt or liability. In other words, I can say I'm sorry without necessarily saying I'm guilty, is what that means. But they could function, quote, as another tool for resolving disputes. It would be an act of contrition, if only symbolic. It has tremendous value. I remember reading that thinking, then what's the point of the apology? You're having an, an apology that really doesn't mean anything. It's just sort of, we're just sort of bridging a gap, making this all feel better. But I'm not wrong. Imagine how much more valuable it would be if you really apologized. So here's a hard, hard question. When was the last time you apologized? Okay, I won't look at anybody specifically. <laughs> but think about that. When is the last time you really apologized? Maybe a better question would be, when's the last time you apologized to family? Because that's where it really needs to happen, isn't it? 
Boy, if we aren't apologizing on a regular basis to those that we're regularly around, especially those who really know us, then we're struggling with pride. And I'm telling you, it's no, no easier for me than, than it is for you. But having a humble heart, um, a humble heart, a gentle answer, Proverbs says, can break a bone. Humility goes so far in, in bridging gaps of breaches. I remember reading at some point Jimmy Hoffa once said, I may have faults, but being wrong ain't one of them. <laughs> That's sort of like that California apology that really isn't an apology at all. And you know, I think we'd all look at Obadiah and say a big amen that the arrogant heart is not something that God wants. He wants a humble heart in our lives. And yet, we will also walk out the door today and continue in a prideful heart with a, with a particular individual or with a family member or with something that we pretty much got our heels dug in and we're not going to lose face on a particular issue. Pride is often a blind spot. I don't think any of us want to be proud, but we sometimes we just don't see it in our own lives. We can be proud or arrogant in a particular area, and unless somebody loves us enough to step in and say, hopefully they'll do it in a gentle way, <laughs> otherwise our pride kicks in. <laughs> but they'll say, you know, uh, you probably said that a little tough, a little harsh or um, you know, confronted us on a blind spot. How do we respond to that? Thankfully, when Christ died on the cross for our sins, he took care of all the things that were uh, our prideful blind spots. And once we place our faith in the Lord Jesus, a wonderful thing occurs. You become more and more aware of the sin that he's died for. Have you noticed that like when the, the longer you live as a Christian, you read through the scriptures and you realize more and more of it's talking about you? That's hard, but, but it's also such good news because you realize I'm not, half as, I'm not half as good as I thought I was. I'm twice as bad. But the good news is that means God's grace is twice as big. And if I am just now coming to see this part of my life that's, that's was a blind spot before, what am I not seeing that's still there? That God sees, that God has forgiven, but is waited to show me because I couldn't handle it if he showed me the whole tar pit at the same time. But in his grace, he shows us bit by bit to let us know, give us opportunities to be humble, and also to give us a greater perception, a greater realization of the great grace that he has in our lives by Christ dying for us. Both uh, James and Peter in the New Testament have that wonderful verse that says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under God's mighty hand. I like that. We're not humbling ourselves in our own strength, but we're humbling ourselves under God's hand, His mighty hand. That's a safe place to be humble, is under the hand of God. Donald Gray Barnhouse said, Christ sends none away empty, but those who are full of themselves. The Edomites had a misplaced pride in their geographic position and their wealth and their army, and God says, you need to change that because otherwise it's going gonna, it's gonna to go bad for you, and unfortunately it did. 
Edom was a stronghold, and if you think of it that way, our pride's also a stronghold. In fact, our pride is often the last stronghold that we give up in our lives and in our relationships. And God wants us to walk in humility. So the three lessons, the three principles. The first one was an arrogant heart seeks personal security apart from God. Second, an arrogant heart gloats over the pain of another's justice. And finally, a humble heart enjoys true benefits in God, both now and forever. I love the phrase that Jesus said when he, when he said that I am gentle and humble of heart. Don't you love that? I am gentle and humble of heart. And you will find rest for your souls if you come to me. What an honor it is to rely on a God like that. Let's pray. Father, we are born with pride and rebellion. We are born again with humility and faith. Thank you for giving us, opening our eyes on the day back when it happened and showing us that, that our self-sufficiency, like Edom, was not our source of strength. It was actually a weakness. It was a vulnerability. Thanks for our time this morning in Obadiah as we get just a brief glimpse at your view of arrogance and therefore your urging of us to come one step closer to humility. Whether it's in a relationship or a mindset that focuses on money or on uh, security or on a good family, a good reputation, whatever it is, Father, apart from you, help us instead to turn and to rely fully on you and on nothing else. We pray for those who aren't with us today, who need your grace and your care specifically. And we pray for those perhaps who don't know yet know the Lord Jesus Christ and in their own blind spot and sufficiency, self-sufficiency are clinging to a life of good works instead of the great offer of Jesus who died on the cross for their sins, that they may in humility come to him and to have the greatest benefit that they could possibly imagine, forgiveness, peace, and a promise that we will one day live in this kingdom that we've read about here in the book of Obadiah. Thank you, Lord, for a good reminder today. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.